Well, good morning. My name is Dr. Don Sin. I'm the Deputy Chief Editor of the European Respiratory Journal. Today, I'm joined by Professor Bart Celli to discuss his latest paper entitled Simplifying Pharmacotherapy for Patients with COPD, a Viewpoint. This paper is published in the August edition of the ERJ. Professor Celli is currently Professor Emeritus at Harvard Medical School. He has published more than 400 papers and is the inventor of the most commonly used prognostic predictor in COPD called the Bode Index. He is truly one of the great giants in pulmonary medicine. Good morning, Bart. Good morning, Don. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for joining us. We're going to go straight to your article where you argue for simplifying pharmacotherapy for patients living with COPD. This is sort of contrary to the current precision therapeutics era where treatment is becoming more complex, more stratified, and more expensive, frankly. So Bart, why do you think we need to simplify COPD pharmacotherapy? Is the treatment so complex that regular clinicians cannot deploy it in their practice? I think it has to do with two facts. Number one, the uh, number of individuals with COPD around the world is huge. And for diseases that are highly prevalent and for which there is a lot of undertreatment that kills many people, this being the third cause of death, we should take examples from other diseases where pharmacotherapy has been applied in a fairly simplified way. I always like to look at my friends, the cardiologists, on how they manage hypertension. They haven't had a new drug in over 25 years, and using a very logical approach with tools that are at the hands of most clinicians, they've been able to impact on the outcomes of that disease, like heart attacks, strokes, and other diseases related to high blood pressure. It seems to me that without taking away from precision medicine, you can, with the tools that we now have, apply them effectively to the vast majority of individuals. Actually, it also adds a bit of the uh, industry problem. We have 28 inhalers in the U.S., ones with single agents, one with two agents, one other ones with three agents, several presentations that make the field of COPD treatment somewhat complicated in the trenches. And the vision we propose in this paper is to try to simplify it in a way that without abandoning some precision, we give it to the patients in an easier way than it's been done until now. In the article, you argue that patients should not be treated in a stepwise fashion. What do you mean by this? Over the years, COPD has sort of followed the path that has been used for asthma in essence which is to begin conservatively with one agent, then on a second agent, then turn on to a third agent, and if something fails, look for a fourth agent. The difference between our disease and that disease, which is our therapeutic model, is that the lung function never returns to normal. It's not like an asthmatic who, with a simple dose of sometimes a bronchodilator, their lung function improves almost to normal or to normal values. In our case, the disease is more resistive to therapy, and it is our feeling that we should maximize the therapy to achieve the best bronchodilatation that we can and the control of the consequences of that bronchodilatation. Therefore, approaching it in a way where we start with a little bit and then add a little more may not be right, 
in light of the evidence that shows that combination of agents in our disease are more effective and do not add more side effects or tremendous costs to the therapy. So I believe that the stage is set to give to our patients the maximum bronchodilatation we can without paying a significant price on side effects and judge the use of other medications depending on a precision type of medicine, which I think we can achieve with what we have at hand. So in many ways, stepwise therapy is based on the predicate of failure. If you fail this, then move on to stronger medications or more medications. And what you and uh, Professor Vespo are arguing for is why go after failures? Why not go after success right from the beginning? Is that correct? Absolutely. Again, I may take another page from our brothers, the cardiologists. If you read the literature, there is a push for them to use what they call the polypill, which is in the last paper that I read in the New England Journal, four medications in one little pill given to individuals right from the beginning with very good outcomes within a year. I argue for the polypuff being the equivalent of a polypill that can allow us to give good medications that are relatively safe right from the beginning. I like that. I think you should trademark polypuff. <laughs> it is in the paper. We didn't put it in the title, but it is in the context of the paper. Okay, let's uh, take an example. If a patient with COPD walks into your office for the first time, let's say they have goal 2 COPD, what pharmacotherapy should you or a clinician consider right from the beginning? I believe most doctors who see a patient with COPD sees them because they have symptoms. It's not that they show up at your office sent by someone because they found a low FEV1. They usually come in because they either have shortness of breath or they have persistent cough and sputum production or have been seen or admitted in an emergency room, which is not infrequent. We know from the literature most of them are underdiagnosed and certainly under or mistreated. My feeling is that as a clinician, we have enough tools. If the patient comes in with a history where the primary symptom is shortness of breath, has never been to an emergency room, is certainly relatively in well shape otherwise, I think double bronchodilatation, combination of a lama and a laba with plenty of literature showing that it's better than a single agent alone, should be the treatment of choice. If on the other hand, and again as a clinician, somebody comes in and, and on the history, I get a history of having had asthma, rhinitis, eczema, has wheezes, and has a lot of what I have called in that pay, we have called Jurgen and I asthmatic features, it may be best to consider a, a steroid associated with the bronchodilators. So the, the algorithm we are proposing is a lama lava for the first set of individuals and a precision medicine guided by the clinician on the right side with double therapy plus an inhaled corticosteroids. Current therapy suggests that we have to wait for them to have exacerbations to be admitted. As a clinician, again, it does not make a lot of sense to wait for a bad thing to occur before you can prevent it if you have such tools. Finally, we do have a little biomarker, the eosinophil, that you know, most people will get in their clinical eval in a CBC and using the eosinophil as a guide. If those values are too low, it may not be wise to use the ICS. It may be best just to consider other therapies that are available. 
So I think we have enough tools in our hands for a clinician in the trenches to make a precise allocation of medications, maximizing the therapy from the beginning. So again, focusing on success rather than failures. Absolutely, absolutely. So let me just explore this a little further. You and Professor Vespo mentioned asthmatic features or asthma features to guide uh, therapy, especially for inhaled corticosteroids. Can you elaborate on what you mean by asthma features? Is that just a history of childhood asthma? Well, you would like it to be more than that, but that's one of them. I do pay attention to that history of an individual who's had asthma when they were young. Asthma is a loose feature when you're young because it's a clinical decision. And sometimes a kid may be seen because they have asthma and in all reality have something else. And it was called asthma at the time. But there are enough clinical information that we can gather in the personal interview with our patient that will allow us to confirm that there are clinical features. For example, frequent rhinitis, conjunctivitis, eczema, allergies to medications or frequently to environmental agents, and a strong history of asthma for which the patient has been treated, where this is indeed a signal that the patient may be somewhat asthmatic. Furthermore, as it is frequent that we obtain a chest x-ray or a CT scan and there are no holes and it seems like it's mainly airways, and if in your physical exam you have wheezing and the patient tells you when I get a cold, I wheeze, these individuals do have a frequent problem of what is known as a TH2 phenotype that may help the clinician incline the therapeutic tools to add inhaled corticosteroids. I also, and this is something that I use in the clinic, tell my fellows to make sure that there is no infected sputum, that the patient doesn't have running bronchiectasis, so you don't aggravate an infectious problem before you start ICS. And finally, the eosinophils. I think this is a very good clinical biomarker, easily available. If the values are very high, that reaffirms that the response to steroids is more likely to occur. If the values are very low, the risk of having problems for ICS increase with no real increase in the benefits. So I think we have enough to precisely select this some group of individuals who will do better on steroids. Some of the trials where ICS was used in individuals without a history of exacerbations showed prevention of exacerbations down the road. So this sort of dogma that we have to wait for these events to occur, to me, don't make a lot of sense, and it is still embedded in most of the uh, guidelines. Well, you know, one of the concerns that has evolved over the recent uh, decade or two regarding inhaled corticosteroids is the increased risk of pneumonia. Should clinicians or patients be worried about this when they are prescribed inhaled corticosteroids? And if so, who should worry? I think whenever you give a medication, you know, even the mildest of them, you have to be aware of the potential side effects. So I'm not saying that it is a blanketed green go ahead to everybody to get ICS to anyone who walks into your office. And indeed, I do pay attention to a history of sputum that is infected. I actually ask him, is your sputum green, brown? They frequently get big chunks of ugly looking stuff. That to me is something that I pay a lot of attention to. In individuals who are very thin and who have a history of bronchiectasis likewise, and I add the eosinophil to that. Once you put them on steroids, you can't just send them away. 
you got to monitor and see if it's been beneficial to them and if they have no bad side effects. The ones that we clinically see a lot is poor use of the uh, of the techniques of cleaning the mouth afterwards. You get a lot of sometimes thrush. And indeed, pneumonias may occur. And if that happens, you have to be aware that de-escalation may be needed and that there are secondary medications that we can use. In the algorithm we propose, you will see that we pay a lot of attention to make sure that you monitor for ICS side effects and that you de-escalate if needed be. I have to say that over time, Don, you're younger than I am, but over time, we've decreased the amount and the dosing of inhaled steroids. We used to up them up, you know, give them 1,500, 2,000 micrograms a day. That doesn't happen anymore. So I predict that maybe with the new preparations and better care and better knowledge of side effects, we may decrease the potential side effects. Is an argument to treat everybody with triple therapy that includes inhaled corticosteroids, long-acting beta-2, and long-acting antimuscarinic right up front? Why do we need to wait until people fail? No, I, I, if you see our algorithm, we don't wait until you fail. We put right up there on the right side the triple therapy as a potential option right from the beginning for the appropriate patient with careful monitoring. Having said that, I, I do believe that some of the data shows that on the trials where triple therapy was used, on average, individuals with less than 100 yields did not really benefit that much from adding it. So I think you have to be a very good clinician, very much like we manage, for example, blood pressure medications. I go back to that example. Some of the medications may not be very good for African-Americans, for example, who so avoid those medications in African-Americans. We are evolving along those lines, but I truly believe that we underutilize triple therapy in the appropriate patients. We haven't talked about spirometry. What do you think is the role of spirometry, if any, in the management of COPD patients? And do you think something like bronchodilator response has any therapeutic guidance value? Well, nobody steps into the clinic that I guide without a spirometry. To me, the severity of the obstruction is a crucial determinant on the multi-component management of COPD, not just which pharmacotherapy, but how I view the patient, how am I going to follow them, and what other tools are there available beyond pharmacotherapy. It's not the same to have an FE1 of 40% predicted and another one of 60% predicted. Also, I do pay a lot of attention to what happens to the spirometry over time, even related to pharmacotherapy. I have seen cases of individuals who placed on one single agent slowly increase their FE1 over one liter. To me, that's a wonderful response. What disease this is that may take long to respond but could happen, to me, is informative in my clinical management. So I do spirometries very frequently. If, they, if I put them on therapy six weeks later, I haven't come back and do another spirometry and then wait three months and then a year or so thereafter to make sure that I do follow which way are they heading. And spirometry is so inexpensive, low-tech in many ways, but so informative. So I think we want our audience to understand the importance of spirometry, not only to the initial pharmacotherapy, but monitoring of that pharmacotherapy. Absolutely, absolutely. Rapid decliners, people who decline abruptly after an infection, to me, that is a red flag that we should be aware that things may 
worsen relatively rapidly. Well, as we do for all these podcasts, we give our guests the last words. Do you have any uh, parting thoughts regarding your paper or in COPD management in general that clinicians should know? Well, I think the first and most important thing is to make a diagnosis, a correct diagnosis. Over and over, you have data that shows that people get admitted with a label of COPD and haven't had a spirometry. And when it is done, sometimes they don't even have COPD and are getting the wrong treatment. So to me, making the right diagnosis remain at the center of our fight against this. Cleaning the environment and smoking cessation are central to the overall management of COPD and prevention, but adequate pharmacotherapy remains a cornerstone. I, again, I go back to our brothers, the cardiologists. They've been able to really impact on hypertensive outcomes using medications that have been there, you know, when you were a resident. <laughs> you know, we've had diuretics, beta blockers, and ACE inhibitors for 30 years, and combining them for a disease that has a high prevalence with some selection has resulted in impact on outcomes. I do believe we are impacting on COPD. Mortality from COPD seems to be decreasing in most of the Western world. We have problems with other kinds of issues for COPD around the world, but I believe pharmacotherapy remains something that we not utilize as well as we can. Well, thank you, and we'll end our podcast on that very promising summary that Dr. Chelly provided. And I want to thank him once again for giving us a chance to discuss his paper, Simplifying Pharmacotherapy for Patients with COPD, a Viewpoint which is now available on the ERJ website, erj.ersjournals.com. Thank you. Thank you, Don.